Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My next guest joins me on the line to talk about a new theatrical production, The Regina Monologues, which is uh, happening at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. Sharmini Kumar is both the writer and the director of the company, or the artistic director of the company, presenting the work. Sharmini, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, this is a work, a series of monologues by famous women in history, uh, queens Uh of kind of uh, whether they're queens of heaven or queens of a physical domain. Um, Many of them may be known to listeners, some of the the more famous women from the Western canon. Others may be Uh completely new to some of our listeners as well because this is a work that is not just a feminist work but it's uh, an intersectional feminist work that's acknowledging the fact that important women in history have often been sidelined because they didn't happen to come from, I don't know, Western Europe. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, Trying to to bring that perspective to bear as well, yes. How did the project begin? Uh, Well, people who know me know that I like to write about history and I like to write about women and I like to write about these kind of slightly less um, well-known corners of history. And it was actually a few different people who who said to me separately, uh, this is somebody you should write about and hand me a biography or, you know, sent me a link. And it was all these different women. And the only thing they actually had in common is that they had some kind of royal connection. Uh, And I just thought, well, uh, you know, I I could keep myself going going for years or I could put them all in one thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, the I guess let's talk about some of those women then because, Ooh. as I mentioned, kind of, uh, some would be familiar perhaps to students of history or even uh, they may have been referenced in when people were in secondary school and so forth. So people like yes. Catherine the Great, for example, yes. or Mary, yes. Mary Queen of Scots. Mary Queen of Scots, yes. Kind of, uh, she got uh, a movie recently. So. Yes. So yes. their names would be familiar, but I'm sure nonetheless you're delving more deeply into the... The, to, to get past the familiar, to get more to the heart of these characters. But then you've got people from, um, from I don't know, uh, let's see, uh, Queen uh, Himiko, uh, a shamanese, yeah. a, a shamaness queen from Japan. Yeah, yeah. So she's from the second century CE, um, and not a heap is known about her, but she was, as far as we know, Japan's first first female ruler. Um, and uh, it's just a fascinating kind of story in the way she, she's been portrayed and been um, looked at not only through Japanese eyes as an, as an icon, um, but also through Western eyes um, as well, those fascinating kind of intersections of perspective there. Now, what also intrigues me about this work that you've created is that mm-hmm. you're not just presenting this series of monologues I just, you know, I guess a fairly static way as uh, kind of a series of characters coming out on stage, doing a monologue and then leaving. Tell us about the staging of the work as well. Yeah, so that we've divided the space into three sections um, and all being well with COVID. Um, we'll be presenting up to three monologues at a time and you'll be able to walk between between them and you'll be given a little program or outline, I guess, of what will be happening at what time and you'll be able to decide which one you're going to see at different points. Um, and there's the option to see 10, but there are actually 12 pieces, so you won't actually be able to see all of them. Um, it's just a way for me to think about getting people to engage a little bit more closely um, with, the, with the piece, to think about um, what draws you to a person or what interests you in a, in a story um, or in a character. Um, yeah, just, just to get people to, 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 to think through that, make some choices, but also to give people a little bit more of an intimate feel with, with each of the characters. Um, and also uh, to give them, even if they go uh, as a couple, for example, or if you take a friend, yeah. uh, the fact yep. that you could split up and have an overlapping but nonetheless unique theatrical experience because you may not yeah. see the same works. Exactly, that's right. And, and to see them in different orders and put different um, 
so there's so many, as you've sort of alluded to, there's so many different um, themes that come up again, although we obviously there's very individual things about each person, but ideas about gender, ideas about power, ideas about race, um, and seeing them in a different order with different ones sort of juxtaposed, I think would, would slightly alter the experience for anybody. So that is that is part of what I was trying to do, is, is to give, give people a little bit more control over the experience that they have, but also to give people slightly different experiences so that you could actually potentially have a slightly different experience to somebody who comes even on the same night. And which I guess also perhaps then taps into the idea of giving people more control over history and the history that we we seek out and learn as opposed to the history that was spoon-fed to us, the very Western white kind of history that was spoon-fed to us in high school. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes, you've put your finger on it. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about that kind of desire to bring a more intersectional lens to historical theatre telling and and these historical tales. Because, as we've said, for some of these people their stories will be familiar, but we'll surely learn something new about them. Uh, And then others, I'm suspecting there'll be a few uh, monologues and a few women's stories presented, which will leave people kind of quietly furious that they have never been taught this history before. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Um, It's a a hard thing to do. Like, I've grown up in Australia my entire life, so the, the history that I've received is basically... As, as, you, as you say, Western European history, um, but that's not my um, family's background. Um, so for this, I wanted to take a different perspective, and in doing that, we've sort of looked um, at different parts of Asia, Africa, um, but also within some of those familiar characters, uh, you can know Isabella of Spain and people like that, what, what their Im- impact was, not just in their own country, but in the wider world. So it's about sort of doing that, that kind of research. It's been about, um, you know, getting sensitivity readers and consultants for, for um, pieces that were outside my sort of lived experience. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of research go into it um, to try and expand the perspective um, that we kind of have of these women. And, and I think it's, it's a reasonable thing to do, like the power that lots of these women had, even the, you know, sort of Western European kind of canon of royalty is is a list of women who had impacts that stretched literally across the globe. So uh, there's stories to be told um, about impacts that they've had that aren't just limited to the people that they literally ruled. One of those stories, for example, uh, the direct confrontation of colonialism. Absolutely, yes, for sure, for sure. And we deal with that to an extent in Isabella's um, story, but also... Um, uh, a woman called Nzinga, um, who was uh, from what from what we now call Angola, um, and who spent her entire entire life really um, battling Portuguese colonisation, um, and and that's not a story that lots of lots of people know. Um, in the Western world as well, and I think that's one that should be done. You've set yourself a pretty full-on task uh, with you and your your company as well, which uh, you're the artistic director of 24 mm-hmm. Carat Productions. So not only mm-hmm. for you as the writer of the show, kind of creating a... Se- like, writing one monologue is a dramatic challenge, writing <laughs> this large series of them even more so. Challenge, but it's been a fun challenge as well. And some of them, some of them were a lot of work. Like uh, you know, uh, someone like Catherine the Great. So many aspects of her, and so many really fascinating aspects. Um, how do you condense that down? Which bits do I want to talk about? Which bits, you know, do we not? Do do we just sort of let go? Of what bits are already known? That sort of thing. Um, and interestingly, for a piece that was written uh, two years ago, we're focused on her. Her. Um, Interest in vaccination, which uh, in, um, inoculation, as it was then called, um, and then the, the you sometimes get the other problem with with people like Himiko, as you, as you sort of um, mentioned, brought her up. There's not a lot of historical information about her, um, so you've got almost the opposite problem of sort of the difficulty in getting to know somebody um, from the distant past as well. So lots of challenges, but also lots of really interesting kind of ideas that came up and and and. Um, Finding the way into each of those characters for me was what what I found really interesting. 
If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with uh, Sharmini Kumar about her show, The Regina Monologues, which is on from the 1st to the 4th of July at the Meat Market Stables in Reckon Street, North Melbourne. You can learn more at www.24caratproductions.com. That's the numerals 24, the carrot as in vegetable, 24caratproductions.com. Now, Sharmini, tell us a little bit about the cast you've brought together to perform these monologues, to embody these women and present their stories to the Melbourne theatre-going public? Yeah, that's a, they're a fabulous group of women, um, women and non-binary actors. There's 13 of them. Some of them have been on board for, uh, you know, 15 months um, since before, before you know, we were, we were planning this piece to be, to be put on at the end of April of last year, and we all know what happened to that. Um, and some of them are people who have really strong connections with their character. Um, we've got a Scottish woman playing Mary Quinn Scott, so that, that, that helps. Um, some of them, are, like, only discovered the, these characters as they, you know, read through the monologues and then did the research for it. So uh, it's been really interesting working with people, uh, some of them for a really long period of time, some of them for a much shorter period of time, um, and discovering their, like, facilitating their very personal connections with the material. The Regina Monologues is on from the 1st to the 4th of July at the Meat Market Stables, 2 Reckon Street, North Melbourne, uh, and you can book by going to www.24caratproductions.com. Shamini, how many times have you had to reschedule the production now, given that you had originally planned to stage it in April last year? Because that in itself must have been pretty emotionally draining to be working towards something putting it on hold again, working towards it again, putting it on hold yet again. Yeah, it's the third time we've booked dates in. So we obviously um, cancelled the one from last year. We were hoping to put it on later last year. That didn't happen. We booked it in for, you know, right at... uh, We were supposed to actually open tonight, but we've got actors who are in uh, regional Victoria and wouldn't actually be allowed to show. So uh, we've gone back another two weeks. So this is... we're, We're third time lucky. Third time lucky. And I'm sure it will go on this time. So uh, fingers and toes crossed and everything else. Absolutely. For the the Regina monologues, 1st to the 4th of July at the Meat Market in the Stables in North Melbourne, uh, created by uh, Sharmini Kumar. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Triple R. I'm joined by Mike Finch, who is the co-director of Circus Plan 47B, question mark, um, which was to be presented by NICA and has been postponed and Mike now cancelled, but going ahead with the show, uh, and also a couple of performers, Emily Zoe and... Oh, just one, Richard. Just one? I think we just got one, yes. Uh, which... Hello, my name is Emily. Emily. Emily, excellent. Hello, Emily, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank good, you. Good, good, good. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, am I right then in, th- Hi, Richard. in thinking that you're trying to continue the rehearsal and development of this show even though everybody is now doing it in isolation no well this is what's fascinating is that we we had that snap lockdown of melbourne this is actually a project that is the final year ensemble show for the the you know it's the third year big ensemble project for the nika students at the end of their bachelor of circus we actually are supposed to have done this in september last year yeah, and so every rolling year now this is our fourth year so now, Emily, but we should have done this show last year. But here we are with plan. We're past forty-seven now. We're <laughs> past forty-seven. <laughs> I, I did wonder. So Emily, just give us give us a, give us a background, Emily, just for a moment. Like, so just yeah. yeah so we started your... rehearsing this show over Zoom in the first, very first lockdown uh, back in March twenty twenty, and so the plan was to get this show up and running. Uh, over the last lockdown, but then Melbourne went through a, a last little short stint two weeks, which created our rehearsals to be over Zoom. And we didn't think we'd be able to perform it, but here we are about to perform it in two days, fingers crossed. Okay, so off, off, on, off, and now on again. So I think the name needs to be changed to Circus Plan 479F or something like that. But That's exactly right. And that was the, where we were coming up with the name. I actually put a joke we put together a little um, communication group for us. And as a joke, in last year, I named it Circus 21 as a joke. Like, oh, yeah, as if we'll be delaying this till 2021. And um, so a big chunk of the early devising, Richard, in fact, the first 
three months probably, I hadn't actually met all the students. They were just mm. Zoom faces and I actually didn't know how tall they all were because I'd only ever seen them from the sort of shoulders up. Um, and we'd done various bits of stuff, everyone in their own living room. But essentially the, the purpose here for NICA is to bring together a group as an ensemble to have an experience of what it's like being out in the real world working as an ensemble. And I very much came with a Circus Oz approach, which is my background. And I'm really lucky here to be co-directing with Stephen Burton, who is an extraordinary director. He was actually my mentor at Circus Oz when I started as artistic director in 97. He was a generation above me in terms of he'd already performed in the show and directed many circus shows. And so he is a senior lecturer here at NICA and we're co-directing, which has been enormous fun. It's like a little Circus Oz re directorial reunion to make a comic surreal idiotic it's show very, with these fabulous performers. It's been very adorable to watch their relationship. <laughs> As students, we know them so well. We know, we know Stephen so well. And we, in saying how Mike didn't know how tall we were, we didn't know how tall Mike was either. You know, we were very surprised. <laughs> Which points automatically. And there's only seven left. So the thing is, um, Richard, that's left is that there's been a process of attrition, is that because of the delay and these students have basically repeated their final year, a number of the students were already on the verge of, you know, moving into their own future plans or they got to the end of COVID, as many people did, and have pivoted. So we're down to only seven students. And I, I keep referring to them in my head as the Magnificent Seven and playing the theme. But, of course, Stephen Burton remembers it as a Marlboro ad and the <laughs> students vaguely think of it as a VB ad. But for me, it's the Magnificent Seven and they are just literally seven. From an original class, Emily, how many started in first year? Oh, 20. Yeah. So we're down to a seven-person ensemble, which is a beautiful number to work with, actually. They're a great group. It certainly uh, makes life easier in some regards to create uh, an ensemble show with just seven performers rather than 20 and making sure that everybody, when there's 20 people, that everybody gets their moment to shine and so forth. But simultaneously, Emily, it must be kind of confronting, I guess, for the seven of you who remain to have lost so many classmates along the way through that process of attrition because of lockdown, because of people deferring their final year, for example. Oh, yeah, or... absolutely. It's been very... I it's been very upsetting, honestly, with the circumstances and, you know, a lot of our cast, a lot of the crew just couldn't really, like, had to, like, either change career choices or leave just due to the circumstances. And for us, we love the Magnificent Seven that Mike has put through, but also it's a reminder of who we, of the people that we have lost as well, um, with seven people also in a cast and an ensemble show, you don't really have a place to hide. So we definitely all have our moments on stage. We have many, many a moments to shine. That is, that is no issue whatsoever. Uh, but you can't really hide from a, from a section of the show that you don't enjoy. You kind of got to live up and be like, I don't enjoy this one. I hope everyone knows that. <laughs> uh, now... Mike, to come back to the earlier idea of directing via Zoom, talk to us about the challenges of making a show, constructing a show and rehearsing over Zoom. Circus is such a physical art form, like dance. It's written on the body. It's created on the body. It's, uh, and it revolves so much around uh, the interaction uh, and the trust between performers, for example, particularly in terms of uh, kind of acro, acro balance, for example, and all those kind of really kind of physical elements of contemporary circus practice. So how the hell do you direct a show remotely? Well, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, <clears throat> if it was a different type of show, say more of a cabaret style or a showcase show, we could have eventually worked out how to put each person in on some sort of space in their backyard or on apparatus in their living room. But it just was not the purpose of this show. The idea was to bring people together. So we did a lot of, and probably too much, but we just there wasn't much more we could do, but a lot of meeting, talking conceptually about ideas. And um, I use Google a lot. I use Google Docs an enormous amount, both spreadsheets as well as Google Docs. So we start to weave a, a script together that we can all collaborate on simultaneously, which is daunting in the middle because it just becomes this massive... It's like keeping a whiteboard with every idea anyone's written that everyone can see. So it's like covering... Like from one of those crazy horror movies where you go into the room and the 
the detective or the killer has covered every wall with, wall with post notes. Um, but essentially, it was lots of talk and then trusting that these performers, some of them, Emily, how many people have spent more than three years? I mean, you're obviously you're all at four, but some like Leo and Max uh, have spent seven. Five of us have spent, uh, five out of the seven have spent more than, or six, more than three years at NACA. Yeah. Yeah. So they're very experienced performers, actually, you know, and in the old days, they would be people who are already, you know, they've been turning up basically nine to 8.30am till 5pm every weekday for three, four, five um, years. So they're very experienced. So you can actually shorthand. It's like going, you can do that thing you can do and then you can do that thing. But eventually there's just this desperate need to be in the room and climbing on each other or to arranging people. And even with Zoom lag, like we could rehearse little things. Emily's an incredible bounce ball juggler, along with Issy, another one of the performers, and teaching the rest of the group. So Emily's been teaching the group, but even bouncing balls is slightly out of sync. So it's very hard to sort of do that on Zoom. Um, and, Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, and we and had coming this, back into lockdown. We had on. this weird experience of where we had to like read the script line by line of where each cast member would do their thing. So it would be like your your line of the show would be would be what your action or what your move was, and. I, I think it was meant to help, but I'm unsure still. But <laughs> it took up time and it got us thinking about the show. But also the yeah. the challenge. Yeah. Sorry, Mike, just I was going to say the fact that uh, even kind of doing a line reading of a work, for example, over Zoom, if somebody's Zoom freezes for a moment or uh. kind of all those kind of technical <laughs> challenges. That... Don't even thinking about the technical issues. Yeah. That's like that was half an hour of our hour Zoom, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're right, Richard, it's like a line. It was very much like a table read at the beginning, you know, in a, in a play. But it's so technical and there's so few words. I mean, there is quite a bit of speaking because our approach is very much to treating every single performer as an, an artist and that their ideas end up in the show. So it's not like dance and choreography or silence. So we're trying to encourage each per person to have ideas. But a line read means I walk to the left and stand still. And then the next person says, I walk over here and throw a ball to so-and-so. And that person says, I catch the ball. And it's just intense. Like the, the script is currently like 80 pages or something. I mean, insane. And to do that, a line read is it a complete... <laughs> during the last lockdown when we had to do one of our last line readings, I gave myself a three-minute monologue because I was like, I'm talking to you now. I might as well just do this on stage. I, like, like, I don't think that would have come out without the Zooms. There's just more talking in the show now. <laughs> If and the other, the other thing, Richard, is we're collaborating with the Swinburne Animation Students, which has been fabulous, but but it's laid this other whole, whole layer where they, and that was much easier to do on Zoom because it's purely visual, and we gave them, you know, a sort of brief of creating these short animations that are woven digitally into the show as these um, whole series of little bits of visual animation, and that it was interesting. Things came out that go, oh, that's easier. You can look at a video and you can give comment on it and then an animator creates it. But it's, um, yeah, massive challenges. So, so many challenges involved in, uh, A, staying at NICA, the National Institute of Circus Art, to complete the, the course and complete the training, let alone 100%. rehearse and develop the show. But is it now going ahead? Yeah, yes. And what's funny is we, we, um, we had originally, like all NICA, of final year shows every year there's a full season it's usually a sort of one week season or maybe 10 days or something it's a ticketed show um and so when this this latest snap lockdown happened it just became clear that it was not going to be possible to put on to do an opening night which would have been a week ago now um and so they there was a, an email sent out that everyone's used to getting these days in the arts which is due to covid this event has been cancelled it's really sad and because a lot of people on the crew had RSVP on behalf of their allocated tickets to, so their family could come or whatever, they got a, an update saying the show's been cancelled. And that and so suddenly we had to also do this thing where, no, no, it hasn't been cancelled. We just there's not going to be a ticketed event. But you the can't show come, is but it's churning not cancelled. <laughs> so so there will be a performance. There'll be there's actually going to be, we think, uh, three performances, but it's just in-house. It's just going to be the NICA um, staff and student body. 
Um, we're doing it under full lights. It's going to be shot beautifully on three cameras, multi-cam over two or three nights and edited together. And that will exist as a piece of streaming content. But I, I think we'll then, my understanding is that Swinburne then hosted as a piece of streamed work. And in fact, you know, Richard, we could send that to you to look at as a show. It's essentially a, a piece of stream work that will take on board all of what we know about um, trying to create digital work that's watchable in some way. But for the students that's going through the entire process, we'll have a staff of a, 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 an audience of a couple hundred people from the staff and student body. Everything's there. We've just finished our safety yesterday. We're about to go into the full tech run. And we're sort of having the whole process. We're doing the whole thing, but in, in you know, in cloistered. Cloistered, like, like we're in a convent or something. Yeah, so no general public, no actual season, but nonetheless, uh, I guess, well, no public season. But, Emily, it must be a huge relief to know that you can at least present the show and show off your skills to your peers, your colleagues oh, and the NICA team. Yeah. Absolutely. Any audience is an audience. And whether you know the people or you don't, you're still, I'm still going to have the nervous feelings going on stage. I'm still going to feel like we should have done another week's, two weeks worth of rehearsals before we go on. But it is exciting. I'm very excited to perform this uh, tomorrow night and, and on Saturday twice. Yeah. And uh, listeners will just have to kind of hope and wait and for the work to be eventually streamed online one of the things to uh which is to celebrate about that i guess is even though watching video is never the same as the live experience of the live performance it does raise the issue of accessibility meaning that people who have mobility issues who can't travel or who live outside of the melbourne C cbd and could not otherwise see the work can actually like for still example richard and for example, it's south of Nika is south of the river, so there's all of those northerners who don't have passports, and so we really want to make sure that it's accessible across borders as well. Um, and Emily, I, uh, I know that accessibility is something that you're particularly interested in in terms of your practice yeah, as well. Absolutely. So it must be kind of, I mean, I guess that's what the silver line of the COVID cloud is knowing that if this is professionally filmed and presented, it will actually allow people to see the show who otherwise may not have been able to. Absolutely. It is super exciting for people to be able to control their own environments and then to also be able to come and see a show that, that wouldn't otherwise, circus shows aren't made to be on video, but I would say this one is. And, uh, you know, people to be able to take their headphones off if they don't want to listen to a sp particular song or sound or, or turn the brightness down is, is super amazing. And watch it at any time they like also um, is... is Super. Yeah, I'm really excited to share this with people who I know I can share this with now. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations to you and your, uh, your peers in the cohort for persevering and getting to this point. And my congratulations to you and your co-director for making a show under kind of ridiculously trying circumstances. It's a shame that the rest of us can't see it, at least not yet. But it's also just, I guess, this is the way the world is now. And it, the, the process of making a show remotely, uh, streaming it, uh, is something that all companies are adjusting to, getting used to, and that we're all still in the process of learning. We're not post-pandemic, after all. We're going to be living with this virus for another year or two at least. That's exactly right, Richard. And just a point, looking, I'm really looking forward to this hybrid version, exactly as Emily says, this accessibility issue um, is combined with the silver lining of creativity that can come from having instant access. Um, so there's there's really exciting features to it. I'd also, just before we wrap up, um, acknowledge the incredible work of the NICA production team who have sort of been working in this vacuum in the centre of, um, you know, uncertainty, as we all have, but they've really had to muscle through. Wayne Appleton and the whole crew, um, brilliant. And also just uh, I really want to give a plug to NICA themselves because they have been incredibly nimble in the circus community and, in fact, what the first things to open up here. Um, and so Nike is running short courses. And speaking of accessibility, it's like all ages, all abilities. Emily's one of the trainers. Um, so if anyone's interested in learning circuits, the Nike short courses program is up and running and uh, available for, for anyone, any age or ability, circus is for everyone. And for more information about Nike, the National Institute of Circus Arts, jump online, www 
Nica, N-I-C-A, nica.com.au. And hopefully uh, Circus Plan 47B, question mark, whatever, if it gets renamed, kind of 48, (laughs) 49, 50, kind of uh, will be streamed online soon and we can see what we've all missed out on. But thank you for joining me, uh, both of you, and congratulations, as I said, on persevering to get to this point. Right now, though, it's time for us to talk theatre and the latest production from Red Stitch Actors Theatre, which is a commentary on neoliberalism. Uh, It's a one-woman show performed by Jess Clark. It's called Iphigenia in Splot. Uh, And, Jess, am I right in thinking uh, Splot is, what, a working-class community in Cardiff? Yes, it's South Cardiff. It's a a rough working-class area. I was first introduced to it uh, in a, a BBC science fiction show that was filmed in Cardiff, <laughs> uh, and they joked that real estate agents had started pronouncing it splow to try and uh, kind of um, oh, make it sound more attractive, but somehow I don't think that ever <laughs> caught on. I like the way it's pronounced in the Welsh accent, splot. <laughs> it's like the real pronouncing the T's. I take it you've been doing a little bit of vocal coaching and uh, accent work for this role. Oh, yes. Um, The Welsh accent is notoriously difficult and particularly... So the Welsh accent is one thing and then there's Cardiff, which is a a different thing altogether in a way. Um, So I've done a lot of listening, a lot of phonetic work. Um, Matt Villani is an amazing accent coach and he's helped me along the way. But it's really... It's a joy to perform with because it's so acrobatic and physical and the writing is, um, is... has a real poetic rhythm to it, so it's really wonderful to to use. Now, the play itself, Iphigenia in Splot, this is a reworking of a what a Greek tragedy, an ancient Greek tragedy. Yeah, so it's 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 in a way it is. It's it's kept the core of the story of Iphigenia, uh, which is basically in the Greek story uh, during the Trojan War. The Greek war fleet is sailing to Troy and all the winds suddenly stop. Um, And the Greek king, who's Agamemnon, has to sacrifice his daughter to please the gods and get the winds to come back so they can sail. Um, And the story is about how Iphigenia has to make the choice. Does she agree to get sacrificed or does she resist sacrificing herself for others and the good of the nation? Um, And that's, that's, that's what Iphigenia in Splot is about, is that core theme about sacrifice so she's a greek heroine by a south cardiff um she's yeah it's the it's really asking the question who are the iphidonies of today who uh, who is getting left behind who is being sacrificed for the for the nation um and for money and profit and all sorts of things i mean because that question of sacrifice for the nation we're talking about austerity britain here aren't we yeah, so this is this was this was written in 2015, performed first performed in 2016. Which, at the time, Wales was a country that was in a group of austerity measures, um, and people like Effie uh, were being asked to sacrifice so much. There were just so many cuts, cuts, cuts everywhere. And you know, there's a lot of it's still happening around the world, and it's about. What, what did what do the cuts mean for people like her, people who already have so little and who are so disempowered? Um, it's sort of, it's a, you know, it's comparing... I mean, I like to compare Iphigenia to all the different underclasses of people around the world and why they're disempowered, how they're disempowered, and the idea of revolution and does it come to mind and would it happen? What would it mean for a revolution to start? Now, one of the challenges with a play like uh, Iphigenia and Splot is, I would imagine, for both Red Stitch as a company uh, and for the playwright as well, is avoiding the trap of poverty porn because there's a lot of well-heeled middle-class and upper-middle-class theatre-goers for whom (laughs) this story is going to be something that they observe from a distance. This is 
not their life. And it's very, mm. it can be very easy to fall into the poverty porn trap, uh, to, to almost titillate audiences uh, with the, the realities and the, the, the genuinely harsh realities of working mm. class and kind of subclass life, those kind of the underclasses who have slipped through yeah. the cracks, not just in Splot, but here in Melbourne as well. Talk to us about exactly. how the play avoids that trap. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. There's, there's a lot of poverty porn out there, and that was one of the biggest questions Gary Abrahams and I sort of asked ourselves is why are we telling this story? And, you know, what, what right do I have as a, <laughs> as a pretty privileged uh, white girl to tell this story? But um, I think what the play does brilliantly is Gary Owen starts with Effie questioning the audience and asking the audience really to judge her and with the way that they would judge, you know, anyone who's drunk walking down the street who is not one of them. And then slowly but surely he changes the perspective in really subtle ways, changes the audience's perspective of who Effie is. And I think the way that the play avoids it is it brings so much humanity to her and her life and I think anyone in the audience will relate to the humanity of who she is and and really it's it's a real challenge to the audience rather than the audience kind of enjoying seeing a world that is not their own it's a real challenge saying are you going to let this keep happening. Uh, what's going to happen when we can't take this anymore? And it's it's angry, and it's um, it's full on, but it's also incredibly tender and human. And I think we can compare her story to anything, anything now, particularly in Melbourne, Australia. And I think it's a really important story to tell, and I, I can't wait to tell it. And I think I think anyone will get a lot from it. It certainly sounds that uh, in some ways the play will be for some audience members at least a wake-up call, a reminder that their yeah. comfortable middle-class existence uh, is maintained by the sacrifice of people on the altar of austerity and neoliberalism. That's right. That's right. It's a real challenge. And, you know, the first time I read the play, and anyone I know who's, who's read it just was so affected by it because it really surprises you. It changes your, your opinion. And it actually, it's so clever in the way it sort of makes the audience think one thing and be bigoted in a way. And then they see what they, and then the audience sees how they've been seeing it and they're confronted by their own um, bias, I guess. Now, it's a one-woman show. It's, what, about 80 minutes? So that's a, a pretty intense time for you to maintain this, uh, not only the character's accent, as we've already discussed, but to maintain the integrity of the, of the character, to start to show us the, this kind of uh, what to some people will be an almost contemptible, drunken woman who uh, sees a handsome man uh, uh, and kind of... <laughs> Moves in on him like an effing cruise missile, I think is the line in the play. Yeah, like an effing cruise missile. <laughs> uh, and then to slowly reveal uh, the depths of her character and the anger of this character as well. Is this an emotionally kind of an emotionally challenging work to perform as an actor? Oh yeah, definitely. It, it, it's 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 a tragedy. It's it's a it's it's very Greek in its tragedy. Um, so it's it's taxing, but I. Yeah, this is the first time I've done a one a solo show, and I've found, I miss actors. I miss that kind of you know interaction. But there's also something amazing about being able to tell her story in its entirety and go on that journey. And I don't. It's it's emotionally taxing, but it's not exhausting because I feel very much in the character and in each moment. So I'm just I'm really excited to show it to an audience. Really. Now, it would help, I imagine, that you've worked with Gary Abrahams as a director before because he directed Pomona, which you also performed in at Red Stitch. Yeah, I've worked with Gary a couple of times. I did Pomona at Red Stitch and then I also did um, Therese Rakan, which was a tour we did around Australia. Um, Gary's amazing. We've got a really great sort of shorthand language between each other. And, um, yeah, a respect that we have for one another and it's 
so amazing to work with him on on a solo piece now because it's just really been the two of us trying to nut this thing out together. I'm chatting with actor Jess Clark about the uh, Red Stitch production uh, Iphigenia in Splot, which... Uh, now, I've got the new dates, but it must have been a little bit yeah. <laughs> disarming and disheartening <laughs> for you as an actor, rehearsing, developing yeah. this work, and then for the lockdown to happen and seasons to be rescheduled. What's that been like? Uh, it's Look, I'm not going to lie, it was really tough. We, we, were, we had just done our final rehearsal run, and we were going into the theatre the next day to check, and then suddenly we were in lockdown and had two weeks off. And the, the fear for me was to lose that momentum, um, but it was actually, look, I'm just grateful to be doing it in front of an audience now and be back on our feet. The whole creative team has worked around different scheduling difficulties and we've all made it work. Um, but the two weeks actually ended up being pretty good for me because I got to just let, let it sit and um, marinate in me. And now we are very ready for an audience. <laughs> That I can easily believe. Uh, the Red, yeah. <laughs> Red Stitch production of Iphigenia in Splot is previewing on the 19th through to the 24th of June and then the season itself is running from the 25th of June until the 18th of July at Red Stitch Actors Theatre at the rear of 2 Chapel Street, St Kilda East, uh, just over the road from the Astor Theatre if you're not familiar with the area. And you can book and find out more by going to www.redstitch.net. Jess, it sounds like... After all the preparation, the delays, the rehearsals, the, the <laughs> language and getting your tongue around those kind of wet Welsh syllables that you're pretty much raring to go. Mm. Yeah, I'm raring to go and theatre needs people's support now. So come one, come all, tell people about it. Um, uh, seats, seats, I should say seats are pretty limited because of density requirements. So don't, don't hesitate to book because I think it will, they'll go quickly. 75% capacity? No, at the moment it's well. Capacity is fifty percent, but density requirements mean one person per four square meters. Yep. So it's it's very it's a it's a small audience, but a small and intimate audience. And I'll be giving it everything every night for each person. So <laughs> small can still be good. It absolutely can. And uh, in the intimate space of the Red Stitch Actors Theatre, uh, it I think in some ways a smaller audience can maybe result in a in a more personal and intimate experience for everybody there. Uh, Jess Clark is performing absolutely. in Iphigenia in Splot at Red Stitch Actors Theatre from the 25th of June which, um, uh, through until the 18th of July with previews from the 19th through to the 24th. Redstitch.net for details. Jet, thank, Jess, thanks so much for speaking to us. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Something else you can immerse yourself in is a new exhibition at Missing Persons, which is one of the galleries in the Nicholas Building on Swanson Street in the city. It's called Papier-Mâché, and I'm sure that you're familiar with making Papier-Mâché, but are you familiar with it as a fine art form? Joining us to tell us more, the co-curator, Louise Clerks. Welcome to Triple R, Louise. Hello, Richard. Thanks for having me on the show today. Absolute pleasure, and thank you for putting on an exhibition which, as soon as I heard it, about it. it intrigued me because so many people, I'm sure, made and played with papier-mâché in school, perhaps in a high school art class or in primary school, but and haven't necessarily thought about its applications in the, the world of fine art and the gallery space. So tell us a little bit more. Okay. Well, the exhibition um, was an idea of Madison Kitching and I. Um, we decided that we wanted to curate a show together and we played around with a few different concepts um, and then eventually decided on paper mache um, as uh, the French translated as chewed paper. Um, and the way we've been describing it is the satisfying transition of yesterday's newspaper broken down and digested into a new sculptural form. Um, this exhibition gave us a chance to work with uh, several artists. We actually um, have 11 artists in the show uh, that come from all different disciplines. We have photographers, illustrators, comic artists, um, sculptors, painters, um, to sort of push them to use a new material 
and, um, you know, basically give it a go and be playful in their response. Which is a really nice premise for an exhibition. Instead of the artist working in a, in a safe space, you're challenging them to, what, expand their practice and also to not necessarily take it too seriously, to play, to explore and to see what results from that. Yeah, I think I think with COVID, we, we actually programmed this exhibition last year and we've um, rescheduled it four times now. Um, and with COVID, it's sort of the, the time forced people to be inside, be at home, be away from their usual studio practice. And this was, for some artists, this was a way, quite a therapeutic way of working from home. For some of the artists, it was quite frustrating. Um, we've had different feedback. Some artists want to continue working with the medium. Some found it um, incredibly uh, frustrating, that, you know, the wait times for drying, um, trying to create some kind of structurally sound object which they're not used to. Um, so, yeah, we had quite a mixed response to it and it sort of reflects, for us, it sort of reflects that time of... Um, you know, the last year, year and a half, essentially. I can certainly understand the frustration from some of the artists, particularly if they already have uh, an art form of uh, working with particular mediums that they've already not necessarily mastered per se, but are comfortable with, familiar with and more than competent in. That's where they've focused their practice and that's where they specialise. To, to then ask them to work with an entirely different medium, which, as you say, has certain challenges and limitations in terms of making, drying, structural integrity, all of those different aspects. But what sort of yeah. artworks have the... How have the artists responded in terms of what have they made? What will people see when they go along to uh, missing persons at the Nicholas Building? I'm actually here at the moment and I'm surrounded by a lot of sculptural works on the floor and a couple of works on the walls, but mainly they're all sculptural pieces. Um, we have a collection of animals, um, which is coincidence. There's many ducks and swans, there's a moth, there's uh, a galar, a Murray cod um, and a koala. Um, so it is very playful. Uh, it's a very playful exhibition. Um, some of the artists worked in completely new ways. For instance, um, Jason Hamilton, who's in the show, he's a photographer primarily and one of one half of um, Hillvale Photog uh, Independent Photo Lab in Brunswick has created uh, monoblock chair, um, which is a, a freestanding chair essentially. So he just he moved completely away from his photographic practice and, and made a sculpture, which, you know, is, is, is fascinating and you do want to sit on it. So if anyone does come to the show today, please don't sit yeah, in the chair. I was, and that's um, one of the works that immediately <laughs> caught my eye when I was looking at the, the some of the images that were supplied with the media release. The fact that it looks like, um, a, I guess, the kind of utilitarian plastic uh, chair that you might see on a sun deck or in a backyard or something. So it has the illusion, yes, yes. the illusion of simplicity and the the illusion of solidity. Uh, but it's neither of those things. It's absolutely neither of those things. The, the, it, it's sitting next to um, a work by the Ryan sisters, who's um, two two artists that collaborate, and they are sisters, um, Pip and Nat Ryan. And they've created uh, sculptures of themselves, representing themselves. Um, they're quite frightening um, to look at, but it, again, it's like this sort of illusion of is it real? Is it a real person? Is it a real chair? But it's a little, there's something wrong about it, um, which is, yeah, there's this sort of element of humour um, to the show that, you know, it's, it's great. Like for us, we're really grateful that that came out in the exhibition because um, the period of time and the, uh, the many delays, um, we weren't sure if this claggy show would actually be a flop. But, yeah, it's really good. It's really good to see. That playful nature is quintessentially expressed, perhaps, in uh, Madison Kitching's work, uh, which I believe is called Mini Giant Koala. She's made a miniature reproduction of one of Australia's iconic big things, the the giant koala uh, between Stall and Horsham. Yeah, so um, Madison Kitching is an artist with a long-standing interest in representations of the Australian landscape and Australian identity. 
um, which his work often includes the commodification of native flora and fauna. And he, uh, he's created three, three works um, that replicate the giant koala, the, the big gala and the giant Murray cod, and has created the mini, the mini um, giant koala, the mini big gala and the mini giant Murray cod. Um, and they're, they're quite, they're, they're incredible works, they're incredibly detailed, and they also um, sort of reference, um, not intentionally, but they reference Jason Hamilton's work as well, because he's, um, in his photographic practice, is quite occupied with, um, preoccupied with photo photographing Australia, suburbia, and also um, giant, um, you know, giant tourism um, sculptures of our, um, our, monuments. Our, our country has a weird obsession with big things. I mean, giant prawn, giant <laughs> potato, giant pineapple, giant banana, <laughs> giant Murray cod, giant koala. And, and there's something fascinating about yeah. taking something which is so, uh, so kitsch on one level and exploring and playing with that and acknowledging overtly perhaps that the kitsch factor inherent in these works in a fine art context in a gallery. It's kind of bringing the, uh, the there's a, I guess, a bringing the outside into the gallery but slyly winking at it simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Jason, oh, I don't want to keep talking about Jason's work, but he did create um, Instagram filter, which is big things of Australia, Instagram filter where you can look at yourself, take a selfie and go through a carousel of images and figure out who, which one you are. I haven't done it yet, but I'm hoping I'm not the giant potato. Anything <laughs> but the giant potato would be good. <laughs> now, you mentioned that a couple of the artists involved in uh, papier-mâché, the exhibition we're discussing, which is currently showing at Missing Persons, located on Level 4 of the Nicholas Building, that uh, a couple of the artists have, um, what, ducks and swans, I believe you said. Yes, yes. So Rachel Rachel Lang um, is an artist in the exhibition. She's a comic, primarily a comics artist, and she's created a body of work called The Critics, which is a series of small paper mache ducks that are uh, watching the other artworks in the exhibition. Um, and also Matilda Davis, who's quite well known for her paintings and is very invested in surrealism and symbols, has created a beautiful two-metre-long um, sculptural work, which is titled True Love's Midnight Vessel. And it's three deep purple swans, a mother and two ducklings. And there's a somewhat sort of vase inside of the mother duckling um, that carries medicinal herbs and a floral arrangement. And, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite a um, dreamy, um, fantastical work. Um, yeah, it's worth coming down and having a look. I'll be here... Mining the show um, from 12 to 6 today and we'll be here Friday, uh, uh, sorry, um, Saturday as well from 12 to 6 as well. So you can head on down, you can have a chat to Louise about the work uh, or if she's not there on the particular day, uh, whoever else is uh, invigorating the show. Uh, so the exhibition Papier-Mâché is showing at Missing Persons, which is located uh, rooms 11 and 12 on level 4 of the Nicholas Building, 37 Swanston Street in the city, showing until the 26th of June. And for more info, just go to missingpersons.me. Louise, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and yeah, I'm going to have to go come along and check it out myself it sounds delightful thanks for listening to this podcast of triple r's smart arts a weekly radio show bringing news reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every thursday hope you enjoy the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback feel free to get in touch via the triple r website 